Well, it's good to be with you, and it's good to be here, and uh, we have been in a summer series entitled Fired Up. And what I love about this is it's given staff and others the opportunity to sort of take some time and focus in on some passages that just fires them up. And this morning, what I love about the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is we see an incredible example of grace and truth and forgiveness lived out. And so today I want to look at several important lessons about living a life of grace, truth, and forgiveness. And if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. Because we live in a world that often lacks and is starving for genuine examples of grace and truth and forgiveness. We live in a very harsh, challenging world. And the best place to observe lesson a lesson on grace and truth and forgiveness is in the life of the person who exemplifies and personifies grace, truth, and forgiveness like no other, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father. And it says He is full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later in John chapter 1, verse 17, John writes, he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus always acted with grace and truth. Now, Jesus wasn't 50% grace and then 50% truth, but Jesus Christ was 100% grace, 100% truth. Jesus never shared truth at the expense of grace. Or exercised grace at the expense of truth. Jesus never switched on truth and and then turned it off so that he could switch on grace. Both were permanently switched on when he engaged and when he worked and came alongside others. Both need to be switched on in us as well. Truth without grace. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes people away from Jesus Christ and us. Grace without truth breeds a moral license to continue to sin, which also poisons the church and impacts its holiness. It's important to understand. Do you get it? I see head shaking, so that's a good thing. You see, people who wanted to know God and to know what God was like needed only to look at Jesus Christ when he walked the earth some 2,000 years ago. People today should need only look to us, to you, to me, to see what Jesus Christ is like. And for better or for worse, they will draw conclusions about Jesus Christ and his church from what they see in you and me. And so it's important that we get this thing right, this grace and truth thing right, grace and truth and forgiveness. It's important because if we fail that grace test, we fail to be like Jesus Christ. If we fail the truth test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we pass both of those tests, the grace and the truth test, we're like Jesus and lives are going to be impacted and changed And the church is going to go forward in incredible ways. Okay, so are you with me on this so far? 
Let's move forward then. So let's dive into a passage of scripture this morning as we look at Jesus himself as he engaged some people that were in need of a serious dose of both grace and truth and forgiveness. And what we will see are some incredible lessons for living a life of grace, truth, and forgiveness all together. And so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will get you one. Just raise your hand and they'll get you one. Now, if you're turning to John chapter 8, and you may notice at some point, depending upon the translation you have, there is a little footnote or an addendum there that that talks about this passage of Scripture, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Where John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, it may say in your Bible that earliest manuscripts do not contain this passage of Scripture. But it is contained in your Bible. And so you might be going, what in the world's going on here, Kent? Well, a couple of things. There is no doubt in the mind of anyone who studies Scripture or who, or who has studied Scripture that this portion should not be a part of God's Word. Now, what may have happened, and this is just a suggestion as I've been reading through that this last week, is that John wrote his Gospel. And then like some authors who sort of write whatever they're writing, they sort of say, it feels good and I'm done with this. But then afterwards, they may think to themselves, you know what, I should have included something here or I should have included something there. And they go back and they then include it. And it appears that what happened here is that this story of, uh, of this woman and the religious leaders wasn't originally in John's first writings. But then at some point later, it became a part of his writings. And so there is really no question or no doubt that this was a part of God's inspired text and word. So just to clarify that for you this morning. But in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11... Turn your Bibles if you're not there yet, and let me read through that passage for you this morning to sort of give us a a full context of what we have going on here. It's a story about Jesus engaging people who are in need of grace and truth and forgiveness. John 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Well, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. At her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay. We're going to see in this passage of Scripture several lessons, five lessons that I've been able to extract from this on how to live a life of grace, truth, and forgiveness. And so let's go. First, spend time in God's presence because He wants to meet with you. Spend time in God's presence because He wants to meet with you. You know, the normal pattern of Jesus' life was to spend time connecting with his heavenly father in worship and communion. And he typically did this early in the morning. He often went to the Mount of Olives, which was a favorite place of his to be alone with God. It was a favorite place of his. It was also a favorite place of 
his disciples. A place of quietness. A place of rest. Where God could meet with him face to face. Strengthening and encouraging Jesus along the way. This was really the normal pattern of Jesus' life. When he would spend time alone in his father's presence. Now, that was a normal pattern of Jesus' life. And my question is, is this the pattern of your life? Is this the pattern of my life? And not in some legalistic, you know, fashion where, where I can then proudly say that, boy, I have now checked this religious box of, of doing my devotions and having my quiet time, and now I'm good to go. But do I long for, do I plan to spend time with Him because I'm drawn to Him, because I desire to be in His presence and to meet with Him, because He wants to meet with you? You know, I can't emphasize this enough that we need to be a church that is regularly meeting with Jesus. Well, after spending his time alone with his father, Jesus moved, the text says, from the Mount of Olives to the temple area, not far away. And notice in verse 2 where it says, And people came to him, and he sat down, and, and he taught them. Love this, because here's Jesus. A religious teacher in the eyes and the minds of people back then. They were attracted to him. Because his teaching had this incredible mixture and balance of authority and grace and truth and forgiveness. Unlike, unlike the religious leaders of that day that they had been hearing from. Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and 29 says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. That's Jesus' teaching. For he was teaching them as, as one who had authority and not as their scribes or the religious leaders. Because Jesus had this great balance of grace and truth and mercy, compassion, forgiveness. You see, Jesus is showing us how we should all walk through life. It's meeting with our Heavenly Father in worship and, and communion and celebration with Him. And when we've done that, it appears that we're then prepared to minister to others. It's, it's going vertical first, and you're going to be hearing this term an awful lot from, from Harvest. It's, it's going vertical first in everything that we do, and then we have the purpose and the power and the wisdom to then go horizontal. You know, I've learned over the years that when I'm not going vertical first in my life, when my first priority is not to meet with Him, spend time with Him, walk with Him, when I'm not doing that, and I try to minister and serve others, it often doesn't go well. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't go well because I'm really not prepared to minister to others as I should. But going vertical first in everything that we do, then we'll have the purpose and the power and the wisdom to go horizontal. Because once we meet with Him, we can then get the kind of necessary spiritual alignment that we need. That's a part of what we need to be doing here is, as, as we learn what it means to walk through life and learn lessons about living a life of grace and truth and forgiveness. We need to meet with Him as Jesus met with His Heavenly Father. Well, the second lesson about living a life of grace and truth and forgiveness is don't ignore sin. Don't ignore it. But make sure your motivation for dealing with it is, is God-honoring. It's God-honoring. In verses 3 and 6 through 6. So here's Jesus. Okay, picture this in your mind. He's, he's seated in the temple area teaching those that are gathered around him. I don't know what he's teaching, but he's spending time with them. And suddenly, 
all of a sudden there's this incredible commotion and, and everything stops to see what's going on. And here comes a group of religious leaders, scribes who were the, the, the lawyers of the law and then the Pharisees who were the supposed spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel dragging some poor woman with them. And I'm guessing this woman is embarrassed and humiliated and is, and is pushed in front of Jesus. And they say to him in verse 4, Teacher, you can almost hear the arrogance and the, and the condemnation here. Teacher, this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And you can almost hear that question with sort of the evil, demonic intent behind it. Well, a couple things. A couple things that we need to take note of here. First, adultery is a sin, and according to Jewish law, in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, the penalty was death for such a sin. Now, understand the dynamic that's going on here, because with this question, if Jesus agrees with these religious leaders... And he affirms the Mosaic law and condemns the woman and they begin to stone her. They could get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities because they were the only ones who had the right to carry out the death penalty. That's one side of it. The other side of it here is if Jesus didn't agree with the Mosaic law, if he tried to just exercise grace and ignore truth to spare the woman from stoning, then... They could accuse Jesus of not supporting or agreeing with the teachings of Moses, which might then turn the people against him. Quite a quandary. You know, the whole ordeal, the the sole motivation here was done so that in verse 6, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The motivation and the part of the religious leaders of that day, evil. Truly ungodly for these supposed religious leaders. What the woman did was shameful. It was wrong. It was sin. But what the religious leaders did was despicable. It was vile. They didn't ignore the sin of adultery. Good for them. But their motivation for this whole ordeal was wrong. They wanted to to condemn the woman... They didn't want to see her restored. They just wanted to see her condemned. She was this expendable pawn in their chess game of treachery against Jesus. I like to play chess every once in a while, and the reality is, if you're familiar with the game, the pawns are really there for the, for the use and the expense of the other pieces, the king and the queen and the rook and the knight. And, you know, when you're playing the game of chess, you know, the pawns are used to, to draw out the other players and their other chess pieces. And, and the reality is when you approach te- uh, chess, those, those pawns are really expendable and can just be done away with. And see, that's how these religious leaders saw this poor woman. She was a, an expendable piece, an expendable pawn. They didn't really care about her. They didn't care at all. They were using her to get to Jesus Christ. And think about how incredibly vile and evil that is from these supposed religious leaders. You see, the sins of the religious leaders were, they were less visible 
If you know what I'm talking about. Um, They were less offensive and more subtle to the public than the woman's, right? But their sins were really more destructive and, and more insidious because they were sins of the heart that can often be hidden longer and ignored by others. You know, we often see sins of the flesh. As Paul lists some of those sins of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, sins of the flesh like adultery and murder and stealing and sorcery and fits of anger, we often see those kinds of sins of the heart less of a big deal because we can't immediately see the, those kinds of sins on, on the surface. You know, sins like greed and pride and hypocrisy and envy. I mean, pride can oftentimes be disguised as confidence. Oh, he's not prideful. He's just very confident in, in what he does. As, you know, he, he, you know, you may call it arrogance, but, but it's really just confidence. But the reality is it's, it's pride and it's harder to see. Or you may say that this person is greedy, but, but they would say, no, I just like to work hard. And, and, and in the process of working hard, I'm able to get things. But the reality is it's, it's really greed at the basis of, of the hard work. And it's harder to identify those sins of the heart because we can't immediately see the impact that they might have because we oftentimes describe it or, or define it as something else. But sins of the flesh... Adultery, immorality, sorcery, fits of anger. Man, we see those things immediately. Immediately. There's no question about those kinds of sins. But the reality is, friends, I think the sins of the heart, those sins that that we oftentimes can't see, they're more destructive. They're more insidious because when ignored, hidden, or left unchecked in our lives, as, as they oftentimes are, it's like a cancer that if it isn't dealt with over time, it, it grows and it spreads and begins to affect other healthy things in a person's life until the effect of the sin becomes deadly and personally destructive. I think that's why the religious leaders were acting the way they were. Boy, they couched all of their religious activity and function in, in other terms like the truth of, and the holiness of God and in reality, at the basis of it was just arrogance and pride and hypocrisy. Why is it that we are more interested in identifying and condemning the sins of others while ignoring our own sins? Ever thought about that? Why? Why is it more, why are we more interested in identifying and condemning the sins of others while ignoring our own sins? Well, I think because when I see someone else's sin, that is worse than mine, it makes me feel better about me and about my sin. It allows me to sort of walk away and go, man, I am nothing like them. As terrible as they are, I am so much better. That's why we like to identify the sins in other people. In my 37 years of marriage to Becky, there have been times that I've been more focused on On her issues, more focused on her shortcomings, more focused on 
her stuff and, and her sins. Now, I need to be careful here because Becky's not here this morning. Um, she's in Chicago with uh, our, our newest granddaughter, spending time with them. And so I don't want you to go away from here going, man, can't really talk about your stuff and your sins and your junk. Not going there. But when I have been more focused on her stuff, her junk, her shortcomings, as I've thought about that, I've realized it's because when my sins and my shortcomings, my issues are are known and identified by me, and if I can identify, you know, some other sin or shortcoming in Becky's life that might be worse than mine, then as I look at myself and I compare myself to her, I feel pretty good about myself, right? For those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. And then if I am more focused on her issues, her stuff, her junk, then I don't even need to focus on my stuff because, man, she's in such a worse spot than I am. Now, I need to say, in the 37 years of marriage, I think I've had more stuff, more junk than I've had to deal with than what she has had to deal with, okay? So please hear that. Well, you know, the religious leaders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day could justify their sin, as anyone could justify their sin and excuse it. If they, if they could make a bigger issue or a deal of someone else's sin, and they certainly did it this day. But we also know that their motivation and their reason for planning such an ordeal was to trap Jesus. Their motives were entirely godless and completely wretched. Everything they did was wrong from the start. According to the Mosaic Law, when, when the, the man should have also been brought with the woman. Didn't know if you recognize that or not, but the man should have been there as well. But, but he was probably involved in this trap somehow, this scheme. How else would the religious leaders have known when to, to barge in and catch, as the text says, in the act of adultery? Unless the man himself was also involved in this. So everything is bad from start to finish here. These religious leaders didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about holiness. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about truth. And they didn't care about honoring God in any way. Their motivation was purely selfish, condemning, and ungodly. And sadly, there are people under the name of religion throughout history that have acted the same way. So when the motivation is right, let me put it this way. When the motivation is right, and when our hearts are pure, when should we not ignore sin in someone's life? Five things. You might want to write these down. When should we not ignore sin in somebody's life if the motivation is right and our hearts are pure? First, when they are a Christ follower. When they are a Christ follower. Now, We need to be very careful here because somebody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, who does not have the Holy Spirit living, residing within them, if we feel like we are the religious sin police and we're all about condemning the activity of a of a non-Christian, the non-Christian's concept of Jesus Christ, the church, and God may only be, boy, they're just all about what not to do or what I shouldn't be doing or what I should be doing, where the reality is what they need is an incredible dose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That how Jesus Christ came to this earth to get rid of the junk that we're dealing with. And we oftentimes are more focused on the sin than we are on the soul. And we need to be focused on the soul 
and not so much the sin. So the first question that needs to be asked is, are they a Christ follower? Second, when you are in a relationship with them. When you're in a relationship with them. That's important because, you know, not that it's happened, that, that I can really ever think, but I would be sort of taken back that if there was something going on in my heart and my life and I had a complete stranger who maybe through gossip or some other way heard about something that was going on in my heart and life and they come to me and go, Kent, shame, shame on you. I'm going, what are you talking about? I don't even know you. And so when they are a Christ follower, when you are in a relationship with them, third, when the sin is harmful to them. When the sin is harmful to them. We know sin is destructive. It causes heartache, hurt, and pain. And if we're in a relationship with them and they're a follower of Jesus Christ and we know that the direction that they're headed is going to be destructive, we have an obligation, a responsibility in a loving, compassionate way with both grace and truth to approach them. When the sin is hurtful to someone else. Fourth, when the sin is hurtful to someone else. And then fifth, when the motive for addressing the sin is redemptive and not punitive. When the motive for addressing the sin is redemptive and not punitive. A third lesson about living a life of grace and truth and forgiveness. Third, examine your own life for sin before dealing with someone else's. Notice verse 6, the latter part of that verse. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus confronted with what what might be seen as a, a rather challenging dilemma here. If someone has said Jesus here is caught between a rock and a hard place. No pun intended here. But Jesus bends down and he begins to write something in the dirt. He doesn't answer the question immediately. He doesn't respond. And some have suggested that, well, Jesus was just really, he was really caught between a rock and a hard place and didn't know what to say. That's not true. Because I think Proverbs 26.4 talks about, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Be careful. Every question doesn't necessarily require a response, particularly if it's being delivered from a fool. What Jesus wrote in the dirt that day has captured the imagination of many for some 2,000 years. And, and after a tremendous amount of study and research, I'm going to give you the definitive theological answer as to what Jesus wrote in, in the dirt that day. You might want to write this down. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. And neither does anybody else. However, let me give you some food for thought here. The Greek word that was used, wrote, is katagrapho, which has the nuance of making a list. That's how the word is oftentimes used. It's making a list. And so some have suggested that Jesus, knowing the hearts of these men, began to write their names, and beside each name, he was writing out their specific sins. But the reality is, friends, we just don't know. Notice verse 7. As they continued to ask him, uh, the meaning here is that they continued to ask obstinately, pressing Jesus for an answer, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, the word Jesus used here was sinless. 
sinless. And the religious leaders are, they're stunned and they're speechless. I mean, Jesus made the religious leaders at that very moment as uncomfortable in the presence of all of those witnesses as they had made this poor woman in that situation. Jesus was saying to the religious leaders that day, you're no better off than she is. Your hearts are filled with murder, hatred, and you had better not throw stones at her because if you do, you should then receive the same exact punishment, which was a terrible way to die. Just as a side, that when a person was deserving of death by stoning, he or she would be thrown into a pit, and then it was the person who saw the sin that was deserving of death. They would spit on the, on the victim, pick up a huge stone, and throw it first at the individual. And others who were there, who knew about or witnessed the sin, would then have a volley of stones thrown at the person until they were dead. And I just can't imagine the horror of that kind of a death. Jesus was saying to those religious leaders that day, Be careful. Be careful. You're deserving of the exact same thing that you're asking for this woman. Now, it's important to notice here that Jesus doesn't minimize the sin. Because, again, Jesus was all about grace and truth. He doesn't excuse the sin. He doesn't ignore it. And he he does uphold here the Mosaic Law. And he says, yes, she must pay for her sin according to the Mosaic Law. Adultery is wrong. It is sin because it violates the marriage bond. It wrecks homes, destroys relationship, and assaults everything that God holds dear in a marriage. But Jesus says, I'm going to appoint the executioner. It's the one who is sinless. And that was Jesus Christ himself. And he'll deal with sin with grace and truth together. So before we deal with sin in someone else's life, we need to first stop and pray what I think is a great prayer, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where it says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer we ought to pray first before we even take a step in dealing with sin in somebody else's life. And then as we're told in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, how to go about dealing with someone else's sin, we're told there, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, not perfect, but those who are striving for personal holiness, they should restore, it says. Not punish, not condemn, not gossip, but restore him in a spirit, how? Of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And we oftentimes don't quote verse 2 of Galatians 6, where it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, when we approach the issue of sin in somebody else's life, We need to have had our own hearts searched. And then in a spirit of humility and gentleness, with both grace and truth, we need to restore and work in a gentle fashion, bringing somebody back. Because the reality is, the burden of sin is huge. It's great. And we have a desire 
to want to come along others and help them through that time and that season. So let's make sure that we're looking in the mirror first to see what things need to be confessed and forsaken before we start looking at others and complaining about them. You know, as my dad used to say, you know, Kent, when you're pointing your finger at someone else, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, right? I mean, go ahead, point at me. Put your hand out. Go ahead, point at me. Okay, one finger's pointed at me, but how many you have pointed back at you? Got three fingers. The reality is we need to be looking at ourselves and our hearts first before we begin to look at what's going on in somebody else's life. Well, fourth, a fourth lesson on living a life of grace, truth, and forgiveness. When confronted with your sin, don't ignore it and walk away. Deal with it. Deal with it. Verses 8 and 9. And once more he bent down and, and rode on the ground. But when they heard what Jesus had said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus returns to riding in the dirt. And again, maybe more of the sins of the religious leaders of that day. But, but just like the woman, the religious leaders were caught in the very act of sin. And how incredibly ironic. When the religious leaders saw themselves as they really were, they stopped calling for the death penalty of the woman. But instead, they walked away from, from the one that could give them the help and the hope and the forgiveness that they so desperately needed but didn't see it themselves. Perhaps, perhaps the older ones left first because they recognized that they had committed more sins than the younger ones that were there that day. Or maybe they just knew that there was no way that they could continue to challenge Jesus and save face. Don't know. I mean, the religious leaders missed out that day on having their sins forgiven, and I believe they walked away worse off spiritually than when they came because they knew their sins but refused to deal with them. How about you? How about me? When our sins are apparent, when we are properly confronted about the ugliness of the stuff in our lives and and God through the Holy Spirit brings conviction, are we going to walk away, ignore it, not deal with it? Are you walking away? Are you here today ignoring the stuff, the junk that's in your heart, in your life? Ignoring your failures? Pretending it doesn't matter? That's an incredibly bad place to be in. Because if you're going to be walking away from the stuff, you're going to find yourself in a worse place later. I remember when Becky came to me after a season, I would like to say it was a brief season, of unhealthy selfishness. Um... Being pretty self-centered, making everything about me. Um, have you ever been there? If you're married, okay. See, head shaking—that's a good sign. She said in a very humble, loving way. She said, "Kent, I'm not sure if you know it, but it's really hard to be around you lately because everything has become about you. What you want, what you like." What you don't like, it's all about you. And she said, Kent, you're just no fun to be around anymore. Ouch. (laughs) And when she said that, I had a choice to make. Was I going to listen to her and receive her loving admonition? Which it was. She's confronting sin. 
Or was I going to respond by either ignoring it, making excuses for why it should be about me, or maybe even turning it back on her, accusing her of being misinformed and insensitive to my needs? Anybody been there? Those of you who are married? Yeah, a lot of heads are shaking. Well, what I had to do is I had to swallow my pride. And it was a big gulp I had to take. And it was really hard to eat. But I had to say, Becky, you're right. Can you forgive me? You see, when we're confronted with truth, and it's done with grace, and it's done humbly and lovingly and compassionately for the purpose of restoring and helping you become the man or the woman of God that you can be and should be, don't walk away. Deal with it. I'm a much better husband today than I was back then. It's not the end of it, though, because in the marriage relationship, we're constantly working together. But we're focused in, first and foremost, on the kind of man of God that I need to be as she focuses on the kind of woman of God that she needs to be. Well, fifth, and finally, Jesus will stand with you not to excuse your sin, but to confront, forgive, and release you because he's paid the price for you and for your sins. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus now turns and addresses the woman as the two of them are left alone, standing there that day. And he confronts her. In verse 10, it says, And when Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Well, Jesus here addresses her as as woman. And and in our sort of modern ears, that that sounds a bit unkind and maybe uncaring. but, But in reality, it was a term of respect that Jesus was using with this woman. This is the same word that Jesus used twice in the book of John, both times in addressing his own mother. And I know he was respectful there, and so it was here. It's interesting to understand that the term was the equivalent of lady. It was a term of honor that was given to a woman worthy of honor. And what I love about the word that Jesus used here was that was certainly not what she was, but that was what Jesus saw her becoming. How incredible is that? You see, Jesus loves us just as we are, with all of our junk, with all of our stuff, with all of our sins, but he loves us too much to see us stay the same. When we experience the truth, the grace, and the forgiveness of God in our lives, it will move us. It should move us to want to change. And then Jesus forgave her in verse, the latter part of verse 11, and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. The only one qualified at that moment in time to throw a stone and condemn her that day refused to do it. Jesus forgave her. He forgave her based on what he knew he would be doing for her and the rest of humanity in just a few short days. He forgave her on the basis of the full and complete payment that he would be making on the cross for the penalty of sin for all of mankind. This is the gospel. Salvation. It's free, but it's free only because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, paid the price for us, the spotless Lamb of God. But the story doesn't end yet because Jesus made one more statement to this woman. He released her. Verse 11, look at it. And he said, go, and from now on sin no more. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about sinless perfection here. 
He was calling her to stop making sin the habit of her life. Jesus' warning here implied a choice. And the choice for the woman was either go back to the life that you had been living or reach out to the new life that is being offered to her that day through Jesus Christ. When Jesus forgave the woman, he set her free to be a different kind of person that she was before. When we hear the truth of forgiveness, we will hear the power of freedom from sin. Jesus does not forgive us to leave us as he found us. And we must also understand that when our sins are forgiven, it is in order that we might be free to live differently. It's not in order that we can go back to the way things were, to the life that we left behind. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says, Shall I continue in sin so that grace can abound? And Paul's response to that was, No! Can I hear that? No! Grace isn't there to continue to in sin. Grace is not extended to give you a license to continue to sin. If it's only presented in that way, we have missed the whole truth side of things. Romans chapter 2 verse 8. Love this verse. It says, Don't presume on the riches of His kindness or His grace. God's kindness... His grace is meant to lead you to repentance. An important verse. Jesus specializes in taking wasted, ruined lives, saving them by His grace, and restoring them to usefulness. That's the God that we serve. Can you say amen to that? What Jesus did for this woman, He can and He will do for you. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were right about two things on that day. They were right about two things on that day. The payment for sin only comes through a death. Comes through a death. Either you can pay for your sins with your own eternal death, or you can accept the death of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. The second thing that they were right about is when someone is trapped in sin, the only good thing that you can do is to take them to Jesus. And that's what they did. Let me ask you this. Who do you identify with in this story? Who do you identify with in this story? The religious leaders? The woman? The crowd? The man? Each of us can be found somewhere in this story. You know, some are like the crowd that stood by and watched this miracle of forgiveness, but but they didn't become a part of it. They saw what happened, but it didn't happen to them. Others are are like the rulers who failed to see their own sin and wretchedness, and, and they went away without experiencing the grace of God and the words of forgiveness that day. Some are like the unidentified man in the story, the accomplice in this shameful plot who allowed himself to be used by others, a willing partner to someone else's sin. Some here may be like this woman who gladly not only heard god's truth but also experienced his grace and his forgiveness please hear me on this there is no sin too great that it can't be forgiven no shame so terrible that it can't be covered over and no hurt that can't be healed because jesus has left us an incredible message not written in the sand but written on a cross Not with his hand, 
but with his blood. His message was one word. One word. Forgiven. 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 Would you pray with me?